Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our podcast will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service and the occasional interview or ministry resource. We hope you'll subscribe. Now, here's today's message. The scripture reading is Galatians 2, verses 11 to 16. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Amen. Well, good morning. As, uh, <clears throat> as Joe mentioned, my name is Chuck, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's a privilege to be with you this morning as we walk through this text. A few weeks ago, we uh, began a new sermon series on the book of Galatians. And last week, uh, Joe walked us through the opening verses of chapter 2, and in it I think he showed us kind of the point and the hope of the book as a whole, that throughout this book, uh, the Apostle Paul, the author of Galatians, he's showing his original audience in the first century, and he's showing us today that if we heed his words, if we take what he is saying seriously, we will find freedom and unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Freedom and unity, unlike anything this world has to offer. And if you're on this church's email list, uh, uh, you would have gotten a note from our pastor, Michael, a few days ago, where he reminded all of us that the hope of this sermon series is to actually compel us to embrace that freedom and that unity and to allow it to equip and convict and send us out wherever God has called us, into our offices, into our apartment buildings, our neighborhoods, our families. We are sent out. We can't hear the words of Christ and we can't hear the words of the Apostle Paul and sit idly by, not if they are truly freeing and unifying. And so regardless of where you might be at in your faith journey this morning, these words from Galatians that we've been looking at and that we'll continue looking at for the next several weeks, these words are significant and I would say potentially utterly life-changing. But that's not to say that all of this is lovey-dovey or anything like that. It's not to say that the book of Galatians is magical, and if you read it and hear the words, then you can snap your fingers, and all of a sudden you'll be covered in freedom and unity, and your life, your actions, the words you speak, everything will be made perfect. In fact, I would say, as we see in this morning's passage, here in Galatians 2, 11 to 16, it's actually quite the opposite. It's actually quite difficult and hard to hear and embrace these words. If Joe laid the foundation of unity and freedom 
that we find in the good news of Christ that Paul is proclaiming in Galatians, then here, in these handful of verses, we're actually seeing the opposite fruit. We're seeing disunity, and we're seeing captivity, and we're seeing prejudices come alive. We're seeing power struggles with the dominant culture, treating others as second-class citizens. We're seeing a sincere lack of mutuality. And so it's important to recognize that, but to honestly wrestle with it. If you were here last week, uh, you remember the last verse in the passage, verse 10. Paul says, all they asked, they being uh, disciples James, Peter, and John, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. All they asked was to remember the poor. Remember the disenfranchised. Remember the marginalized. Remember the outcast. Remember the outsider. This isn't something new that Paul came up with. It's a mantra of God's people throughout the entirety of the Bible. In the Old Testament, on several occasions, God reminds his people uh, specifically to care for the foreigners and treat them as if they were native to their land. The prophet Isaiah tells us God sent him to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom to the captives and to release prisoners from their darkness. God tells his people to not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward the poor and needy, but instead to be open-handed to them. And in the New Testament, in the light of the incarnation, the life and the work of Jesus Christ, in light of God condescending to live with his people, we're told to love our neighbors as ourselves. This means we love every neighbor as ourselves. The fact is that the, the whole of Christ's life is about loving and caring for the poor, the physically and practically poor, the spiritually poor, the culturally poor, the materially poor. The outsiders. And perhaps most striking is when Christ tells his people, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then in Galatians 2.10, Paul says the most important aspect of his ministry is not surrounding himself with movers and shakers, not raising enough money to plant fancy churches with a lot of different things to offer, not trying to get inside the government and turn policies into scripture-based policies. The most important aspect of his ministry is to continue to remember the poor. Continue doing what Christ had been doing. That is all that was asked of Paul as a minister of the gospel. And so I say all of these things because I think they're important to remember. I think verse 10 is important to remember as we come into this story that Paul is sharing in these verses this morning. Because verse 10 reminds us of Paul's heart. It shows us Paul's heart. It shows us what Paul cares about. And so to jump into this story, now Cephas, who's mentioned right away, that's Peter. Cephas was his name in Aramaic, and the Greek transliteration is Peter. So when you see Cephas mentioned here, that's the same person as Peter, the disciple of Jesus Christ. And Paul doesn't beat around the bush at all. He pulls no punches. He says right away, I opposed Peter to his face. And then we're told why in verses 12 and 13. Now the setting here, the setting for the story that Paul is telling is Antioch, uh, which would be modern-day Turkey. And Antioch was Paul's sort of missionary base for several years. What we're told is that Peter was very used to eating meals with both Jews and Gentiles. And this, of course, in the first century was countercultural because typically Jews and Gentiles didn't interact. They didn't break bread together. They didn't socialize with one another. But Peter, 
as a Jewish man, is breaking those stereotypes. He's breaking those cultural prejudices. He's living out the teachings and the actual work of his teacher and his friend, Jesus Christ, who was a Jewish man, who also healed Gentiles, who renewed the faith of Gentiles. Jesus came not to save any one group of people, but he came for all of God's people. Some of the last words that are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew by Jesus is to go and make disciples, not of Israel, but of every nation. In Acts 1, before he ascends to heaven, he tells his disciples that the power of the Holy Spirit is not coming to restore just Israel, but to cover the ends of the earth. And so Peter knows these things. Peter was told these things. He witnessed much of this. He heard these things from Christ himself. And so he attempted to live it out. And as we know, there are few more intimate social settings than eating with people. Sitting at a table with someone and talking, getting to know them. And it's even more powerful if that person you're eating with and you're talking with is someone who normally you would never even make eye contact with if you pass by them on the street. Verse 12, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But what happens? What does Paul tell us happens that leads to this public rebuking and opposition? Certain men came from James. Certain men came from James. Now this is most likely a group of Jewish Christians who were sent to Antioch from Jerusalem by the apostle James. And when these Jewish Christians showed up, Peter, who himself would have been identified as a Jewish Christian, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Because why? We're told he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, to this Jewish Christian group. He was afraid of what his buddies might think about him breaking bread with Gentiles. And so he stepped back, he threw up his hands, and he said, whoa, 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 I'm not, I'm not eating with those people. And what happens? Verse 13, we're told the other Jews joined him in this. The other Jewish men joined Peter in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Even Barnabas, who was, by all accounts, Paul's right-hand man in their mission to serve and love the Gentiles. Listen to this. Peter was a hypocrite. And his buddies, who were also Christians, who were also sent to Antioch by a fellow apostle and disciple, who knew the same things about Christ that Peter did, his buddies gave in to the same prejudiced hypocrisy. And Barnabas, the poster boy for a supportive, encouraging partner who was on mission to serve the Gentiles, even Barnabas gave in to this prejudiced hypocrisy. Now, you know, sometimes you can find a verse that has a word in it uh, that feels a little tough. And you can do a deep dive into that word to really unpack it, to really try to understand what the original author meant 2,000 years ago. You know, not what a group of translators, translators think it means today. And hopefully you can find kind of a magic bullet that might soften its meaning or that might add a little nuance to it. And so I did that on this word, on this word hypocrisy that we see in verse 13. And you know what it really means? Hypocrisy. (laughs) It's hypocrisy, black and white. It means to act as if you have a mask on, as one commentator put it. Even more to the point, a typical definition of hypocrisy is the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. 
I read one uh, scholar say that, and it's not just that, it's not just not living up to your own proclaimed morals and standards, but it's also leading others astray. And every single English translation that I referenced, they all use the same word that we have in ours this morning, hypocrisy. Think of your own life. Where have you experienced hypocrisy? Where have you joined in hypocrisy? Or maybe like Peter, where have you led others astray because of your own hypocrisy? I think of my own life. I uh, grew up in what many would consider on the outside a strong household in Kansas. Shout out. Um, I'm the youngest of five. My dad's a business owner and a pastor. And some of you have met him uh, when my parents have visited Celine and me over the last 10 years here in New York. I grew up going to church every Sunday, listening to my dad preach, believing I had a pretty good understanding of my own faith, of what it meant to be a Christian, of what it meant not just for me to be created in this image of God, but for my neighbors and for my classmates and for my friends and for people I didn't get along with. This image of God that we all had, I think I put on a pretty good show of, you know, talking about it, of, of believing it. Uh, But I also grew up telling racist jokes and laughing uh, way too hard at jokes that were at the expense of people who didn't look like me, acting outside of church on Sundays that I was somehow better than other people. And yeah, I did grow out of the joke phase of my own prejudices and racism, but I still carried with me for years this notion that there's no such thing as privilege or advantage and that the solution to anyone's problem was to simply work harder Show an ounce of ambition and you'll be fine. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Things that Jesus never said. Things that Jesus never taught. And yet things that I held to be gospel in my own life. In a lot of ways, I continue to act like I was better than other certain people. But instead of making jokes about it, I seem to be taking it more seriously. Believing that we're all on the same level. And any success I have has nothing to do with anything other than my own work ethic and my own determination. And I would spend no time considering the history of oppression in our country or anything like that that might contradict these things that I believed. Slavery, the slaughter and theft of indigenous people hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. By now, equality exists. We're all equal. This is what I told myself. And I kept going to church. And I kept leading Bible studies in college, and I kept believing in this whole image of God thing. And if I'm honest with you, it's really something that I've only begun to wrestle with in the last five or six years. I think God kept chipping away at the hardness of my hypocritical heart, showing me too much reality, too much reality here in New York City, too much reality across the world. God was telling me, I can't just sit back and cross my arms and say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps when so many people don't even have boots to begin with. If you've seen the movie or read the book, uh, Just Mercy, you're given a pretty crystal clear example of this, a true story, as a black man, Walter McMillan, is arrested for a crime he didn't do, as he's tried by a jury of all white men and women uh, who refused to listen to any of the evidence that clearly proved his innocence, and then who sits on death row. And if it wasn't for a lawyer who heard about his case and wanted to help him, he would have been electrocuted to death in the state of Alabama. You get a very clear picture of a racist, broken system 
that could lead to a black man like Walter McMillan being arrested and sent to death row for something he didn't do, all because he fit a profile. And not just that, but you also get a very clear picture of a racist, broken system that caters toward a dominant white culture. The sheriff who arrested Walter, in real life, this sheriff never answered for what he did, for the mistakes he made, for the very clear racism that he exhibited. And in fact, he was re-elected as sheriff a number of times, I think something like six more times. And he worked until he retired last year. Many of us in this sanctuary will never have to worry about being arrested for something we didn't do. And if we are, by chance, history and statistics are in our favor that we'll end up being fined, that we'll be treated fairly, we'll be given a fair shot to prove our innocence. Or depending on the bail system, we'll be able to pay bail and walk the streets of the city freely. But there are also many in this sanctuary, and there are many in our own personal lives and in our offices and in our apartment buildings. There are many who worry about this for themselves and their loved ones on a daily basis. Who worry about bail because systems like cash bail that was only uh, stopped in our state as of January 1st. They worry about systems like cash bail because they cater to those with money and they isolate the impoverished. They worry about the hypocrisy of, of hearing things like right to a fair trial or the hypocrisy of hearing things like innocent until proven guilty. Or they think about our constitution that begins with the words, we the people, and yet so many people don't feel like they're part of the collective we. We believe in this. I think we do. We believe in these words, we the people. And yet when we wrongfully and unrepentantly throw Walter McMillan on death row, or when we do fill in the blank with any number of hypocritical things that we see on the news, that we see in our lives, that we see in our neighborhoods, are we really living out what we believe? I think we always want to think hypocrisy or prejudice is out there. It's not in me It's not in my life, it's not in my friends, it's not in my family, it's not in my church. It's the liberals, or it's the conservatives, or it's this, or it's that. It's way, way out there. But friends, I know it's in me. I know it's in me. And what I shared, that's just one area in my life. If you wanted to stick around for another six or seven hours, I could show you many, many more parts of my life that are heartbreakingly hypocritical. Where does hypocrisy start? Where does this idea of proclaiming moral standards or beliefs but not following through with those proclamations, where does this begin? What I talked about is a very specific type of hypocrisy. What is it in your life? Do you believe in being wholeheartedly devoted to your spouse, but are you spending all of your free time scrolling through porn? Do you believe in caring for the homeless population in this city and so you donate money to shelters and missions and yet you won't make eye contact with the men and women who are sleeping on the streets and living on your subway car? Do you believe in equality? Do you believe in we the people but like I used to, you perpetuate racist ideas or policies and systems all in the name of some sort of colorblind equality? Do you believe in inclusivity but do you only surround yourself with people who look like you who think like you, who make you feel comfortable. That last one, that's Peter, at least in this story that Paul's telling us in this passage. That's Peter. 
His hypocrisy is rooted in what appears to be his own superiority over another people group. But not just that superiority, but also this perceived superiority that he wants to hold on to when he's around to people from his own culture. When he's just Peter, when he's just Peter by himself, he's living out the moral standards that he proclaims. He, his behavior is actually following his teachings His actions are following his beliefs. He's breaking down cultural barriers. He's putting himself in awkward, uncomfortable, socially unacceptable situations because he knows that's what he has to do if he is going to live out his calling as a follower of Jesus Christ. He's loving his neighbors, every single one of his neighbors. He's loving them like himself as he socializes with them and as he shares a table with them. But when his friends show up, he gives in. He gives in to what he perceives as pressure, pressure to make sure his fellow Jewish Christian brothers don't think he's socializing too much with the Gentiles, even though, and I'll say it again, these Jewish Christians should be doing exactly what Peter was doing. They're sent to Antioch by a fellow apostle. They all know what it means to break down these cultural barriers, and Peter knows they know this, and yet he gives in. He gives in to whatever societal or cultural pressure he has put on himself. And not only does he become a victim of this hypocrisy, what are we told? We're told his hypocrisy spread. Those Jewish Christians who showed up, who, know, who knows how they would have actually reacted if Peter would have said, hey guys, welcome to Antioch. Why don't you come over here and have dinner with my neighbors? Who knows how they would have reacted? And yet Peter doesn't give them the chance they give in to his hypocrisy, and then even Barnabas, we're told, even Barnabas gives in. That's how dangerous and how significant hypocrisy is. It's not something we somehow can contain within ourselves, and then, you know, if we just control it, it won't hurt anyone else. Our individual hypocrisy is like a disease, and it will spread, and it will lead others in our lives astray. I think of my own hypocrisy that I shared. You know, my friends who were around me, they were being led astray by the way that I acted. My parents who believed one thing about me, but I was acting totally opposite of that, they were being led astray. And that's what happens here with Peter. You know, Peter's an influential leader. Peter knew Jesus Christ personally. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that Peter actually walked on water for a moment as he was with Jesus. There's no doubt that he would have carried a lot of influence and would have been highly respected among other Christians. And yet, he's a hypocrite. Paul says publicly in verse 14, You, Peter, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, yet you force Gentiles to live like Jews. In other words, he says, Peter, you proclaim one set of standards, you live another set of standards, and you hold some people to another set of standards. And so his hypocrisy spreads. His hypocrisy affects not just the people who are the target of his prejudice, the Gentiles, but his hypocrisy hurts the people who are looking to him for guidance. And I would say, certainly, and I know this personally, and I know you do too, that hypocrisy hurts the hypocrite too. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastor and other members of our church community. If you have questions about today's message, send an email to lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our Sunday worship service. Now, here's the remainder of today's teaching. 
Now, you might be hearing all of this and thinking to yourself, awesome, great sermon, Chuck. This is really making me feel good. What do you want me to do about this? If even an influential Christian leader, a man who actually knew the literal incarnate Jesus Christ, if even Peter was a hypocrite who negatively influenced other people, what hope is there for me? What hope is there for me? My friends, the hope is found in one word that is mentioned several times in the closing verses in this morning's passage. One word, faith. Faith. And more specifically, faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 16, Paul reminds Peter and everyone who will listen that a person is not justified by works, but justified by this faith. Faith that is found in Jesus Christ. This means that you and me and Peter, this means that we are considered righteous by God based on no works that we accomplish, based on no decisions that we make, based on no deeds we do, good or bad, foolish or wise, but based solely on this faith in the Son of God in the risen King and the Lord of our lives, Jesus. If you were perfect, if you never made a mistake, if you were absolutely, utterly obedient to every single one of God's perfect moral standards, then you could be justified by your works. You could be counted righteous by God based solely on your works. Michael uh, is going to talk more about this next week as he wraps up this chapter. But as every single person in this sanctuary knows, regardless if you're a Christian or not, regardless of what religion you might hold to or you might not hold to, every single person knows that this is simply impossible, that there is no such thing as a perfect, moral, obedient person. Paul tells us as much in the book of Romans, and he reminds Peter and everyone of that fact here in Galatians as well. We know that a person can never be justified by their works. And so you know what that means? It means that even a broken, sinful hypocrite like me, even I can be counted as righteous in the eyes of the creator of the universe. Even a kid who laughed at racist jokes, who held himself in some unfair view in light of others, even someone like me, God can work in and save and transform and redeem and restore even someone like me, despite me. It means that you, and whatever hypocrisy you might be living in at this very moment, it means that your standing with God Almighty has nothing to do with that and has everything to do with your faith in Jesus Christ. Your justification, your acceptance, your salvation, your freedom and unity that Joe talked about last week, these have nothing to do with your merit or your abilities or your successes or your wealth, your work, your deeds, your status. Your justification, your acceptance, your salvation, your freedom and unity, it's all granted to you simply because of faith in Christ Jesus. Simply because of who he is, not who we are. You want to talk about freedom? There's nothing more freeing in this world than knowing that you are considered righteous, you are considered holy, you are considered good by the God of all creation, even when you are so far from righteous, even when you are so far from holy or good. That's the power and the beauty of this person we talk about every week, that we sing about every week, Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became human, who was born a baby and who grew into his childhood and teenage years who worked as a carpenter for much of his adult life, who ministered to the forgotten, to the outsiders, to the outcasts, who was wrongfully accused, 
and arrested, who went through an unfair and dishonest trial, and who was executed as a criminal, even though he was so far from it, and who also rose from the dead a mere three days after that execution, who continued to minister on this earth, who eventually ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of our Father God to this very day as he reigns as King of the universe and as Lord of our lives. The freedom we get, the unity that we experience, the salvation that is offered to us, this justification that is handed to us despite our brokenness, it's all a reality because of Jesus Christ. And yet, and yet, Redeemer Lincoln Square, we can't end the sermon there. Because Paul's message here is not just about our justification in Christ. Yes, that is the message that Paul preaches and writes about. That is the foundation of everything he does. But Paul also knows that regardless of where hypocrisy might start, regardless of how hypocrisy might spread, hypocrisy must be healed. And though our justification in Christ offers a life-changing, eternal healing that leads us closer and closer every single day toward the glory of God, we also need healing for the right here and the right now, for where God has called us. And that's really the crux, I think, of this entire passage this morning. This entire passage, Paul is publicly rebuking Peter and holding him accountable for the entire community of Christians to see That very first verse, Paul tells us that he opposed Peter to his face. Not behind his back, not through someone else, but to his face. And the rest of the retelling of this story is a further rebuke of Peter's actions and of the spread of his hypocrisy and how it affected those in their community. But he doesn't just oppose or rebuke. He points to Christ. Now he could just wag his finger at Peter and tell him how disappointed he is in him and then move on to the next story or passage. But he calls Peter out. He holds Peter accountable, and it's all for his sake. It's all for Peter's benefit. It's all so that he might grow in his relationship with Jesus Christ, so that he might grow stronger each and every day in his faith and what he believes and in how his faith and his beliefs manifest themselves in his actions and in his witness. You know, earlier in our service, uh, Joe led us through the reception of new members Uh, into the church community. And that last membership vow that he read, I think, actually speaks directly into this. That very last vow, vow number five, asks this question. Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? The idea of church discipline can sound archaic, it can sound wooden, and it can definitely sound like something we don't want to submit ourselves to. But the reality is that the discipline mentioned in this vow, and I think the discipline we see in this passage in Galatians 2, is not about getting in trouble. It's not about being publicly shamed or ostracized. It's not about being cast out from any community. Discipline within a community of believers, within a body like Redeemer Lincoln Square, or within a body like what we see here in Antioch. Discipline seeks to lift up the glory of God It seeks to lift up the purity of God's church and his people, and it seeks to reclaim those who have fallen away from God, or perhaps more relatable to the point, those who are acting hypocritically. Those who have agreed to something, like the third vow in our membership vows, do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? Those who have agreed to that, and yet yet they're acting in opposition to it. As a member of this church and as a member of most godly communities, this is tantamount 
to what it means to support one another. Was Peter endeavoring to live as a follower of Christ? To live a life that exemplified the grace of the Holy Spirit? I think Paul would say he wasn't. But Paul didn't cancel him. Paul didn't gossip about him. Paul held him accountable all the while pointing Peter and everyone around them to the glory of God so that the church might be a little bit purer and more faithful and more honest than it was before. Paul had to have been asking himself, he had to have been asking the question, how are we to remember the poor if we're hypocrites and leading others astray? If you're in this sanctuary today and you consider yourself to be a member of this church, it's my hope that we would hold one another accountable to this degree, that we would rebuke one another to this degree, that we would love God so much that when we see hypocrisy in our midst, that we feel compelled and convicted to call it out. Not to build ourselves up, not to win any argument or battle, but to seek the glory of God in this church and to bring our brothers and sisters and to bring ourselves closer and closer to the love and the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And we're able to do that. We're able to love each other so much that we could hold them accountable like this only because of our justification in something so much bigger and transformative than anything we could ever conceive of. Our justification in Christ through faith unites us together to love and care for each other, to rebuke one another, and to pursue God's glory in all that we do together. And our justification by faith frees us to receive those rebukes, to receive that love and care, to seek forgiveness and to ask for forgiveness and to join in this pursuit together for the growth of God's kingdom in this neighborhood in New York City and all over the world. When we hear this morning's special music for offering, uh, in addition to the incredible music, I want you to pay attention to the lyrics too. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would Would you over evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. You and me, all of us, We are free from the burden of our own hypocrisy. We are free from the burden of societal and cultural pressures. We are free from the burden of evil and sin, all because of the wonderful power in the resurrected blood that has been shed for you and me, shed by Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells Peter, the same Peter that's in this story, Jesus tells Peter that he will build the church on him and on his witness and the gates of hell will not overcome it. This is the same Peter who Jesus also called you of little faith. This is also the same Peter who denied knowing Jesus three times right before Christ was beaten and executed. And this is the same Peter whose hypocrisy spread in his community and who was publicly rebuked for his prejudices and his hypocrisy by Paul. And this is the same Peter who lived knowing how much he failed, knowing how short he fell, and he kept leading, who kept endeavoring to live as a follower of Christ, who, when his time came to be crucified for what he believed and what he taught, history tells us that Peter demanded that he be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die the same way that Christ died. This is the same Peter who Jesus knew all of these things would happen. 
And that Jesus would still use him to spread the good news of his, of his work and would still build the church on Peter and on Peter's witness. That is the power of the blood of our King Jesus. Put your faith in Christ Jesus and may your justification, may that faith work wonders in your life and work wonders in your relationships as it forever changes you, knowing that Christ will use you to bring glimpses of his kingdom into this city just as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for the stories that have been recorded, for the work of men like Paul and Peter and so many others. God, we thank you. And Lord, we, I confess to you of my own hypocrisy, God, that is so deeply rooted in my heart. And I pray that, that this justification that we read about, God, that we'll hear more about next week, that, Lord, that that would just cover us in this freedom and unity that only you can offer. And Lord, may we not sit idly by, but may you send us out, God, to be vessels for your goodness, for your grace, for your love. Lord, we pray all of these things in the name of our King, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for tuning into our church's podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our podcast, and we invite you to join us for worship on Sunday. We're located at the corner of West 64th Street and Central Park West. More details can be found on our website, lincolnsquare.redeemer.com. Thanks again for listening to the LSQ Podcast.